Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica, the Scottish Revolution interview series. Was there a Scottish Revolution? Welcome back to the Scottish Revolution interview series. Throughout the series, no matter which aspect of the topic we were specifically dealing with, I asked each historian the same question. Was there a Scottish Revolution? This was the question which sparked so much debate on academic Twitter, and by extension laid the foundation for the interview series as a whole. My plan was always to compile everyone's answers into a single episode, to best appreciate the range of opinion on this controversial question. The answers will be in the order the full interviews were published, which are roughly in the order they took place, and they may relate to the historian's particular expertise. If you'd like to better appreciate one historian or another's answer, then by all means scroll down the Pax Britannica feed and listen to the full interview if you haven't already, or want to spark your memory. None of the answers relate to one another. They aren't responding to the previous answer, and so they may repeat similar points or contradict one another. Also keep in mind that this is a very complex question, which requires a very complex answer. Entire books have been written about it. So please keep in mind that these historians have made sacrifices for the sake of brevity. One final consideration. This is only a snapshot of a very vibrant field. After all, these are only the views of those historians who agreed to come on the podcast. There are many more perspectives within the field of early modern Scotland and beyond, so please keep that in mind. I'm very grateful to all of those who agreed to spare their time and come on the podcast. I really enjoyed each and every one, and I hope that this interview series played a small part in making academic history more available to the public. Without further delay, let's start with Dr. Andrew Lind. Was there a Scottish Revolution? I'll get I'll, I'll get my soapbox. Get my... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is uh, this is an interesting question and. I guess this is spawned from uh, a discussion which happened on Twitter, which was I was a part of, and part of this was so basically on 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 this Twitter conversation, I went on the wind up a little bit, and uh, 
I suggested that there wasn't a, a Scottish revolution and uh, we were discussing about this before we came on air but I think that revolution is one of these terms which the historiography in general likes to throw about because it's this kind of eye-catching sexy term and it, it, it gets attention however I think that there's there's a risk that it can mask some of the complexities and some of the, the subtleties of the 1640s. Because I think if you were to ask the Covenanters, particularly in the earlier part of the period, so for kind of from 1638 to 1643, shall we say, they would not have seen themselves as revolutionary. If anything, they would have seen themselves as quite conservative because it's all about trying to get back to the true form of the Reformation. They're not, they're not trying to pull down monarchical government or anything like that. If anything, they're trying to restore this kind of quasi-mythical version of the past or the quasi-mythical interpretation of what the future should look like. So in terms of a, a revolution, I think you could argue that it, it isn't a revolution. And actually, when the, the covenanting regime does get an opportunity to enact a revolution, that being when obviously the English parliamentarians execute Charles I in 1649, the Scottish nation as a whole balks at the idea that they would have any other system other than a Stuart on the throne and they very quickly secure uh, Charles II as King of Scots. And obviously that then produces a, a, an interesting debate between Charles II and uh, the leading covenanters as to how exactly they envisage uh, Charles's rule as King of Scots moving forward. But I do accept that, that there is there is revolutionary aspects to the covenanting regime, particularly that you essentially get the removal of royal control of Scotland post-1639, essentially, and you replace it increasingly with a covenanting theocracy which is incredibly powerful. But the mechanisms of state for Scotland remain largely the same. There is no attempt to kind of rip down and, and replace the system of government with anything new. There is a bit of a moral revolution, especially, and, and John Young's written a lot about this, about the, uh, the covenanting parliaments and about how eager the covenanting parliaments are to support the Kirk in trying to enforce this moral revolution or moral discipline upon the people of Scotland. However, I think it's very interesting that if you start calling it the Covenanting Rebellion, you get a very different response from a lot of people. And, you know, you can quite easily argue that it's not a revolution and it's a rebellion. And, you know, the, there's, a, there's connotations with both those terms which then impact how you interpret the civil wars. And I'm not, yeah, part of my anti-revolution stance is really just to try and get people to think about that and to wind some people up, I, I will admit. <laughs> but I think it's very interesting that if you do, if you call it the English Revolution, you tend to, uh, sorry, the, the Scottish Revolution, you, you tend to get a, a certain response, whereas you call it the, the Covenanting Rebellion, you get a different response. And whether the, the Covenanting regime is just a very successful rebellion or a very sex, <laughs> successful re revolution is uh, probably quite an interesting debate that we all should be having. Dr. Chris Langley. Was there a Scottish Revolution? <laughs> we're gonna need a bigger boat <laughs> yeah yeah i think there was I, I i always come back to a conversation that i had as an undergraduate um where i and maybe people who know me have heard this story loads of times i'm, I'm really sorry if they're listening but i remember a conversation as an undergraduate i had with with my supervisor and then i was trying to be contrary and explain why there wasn't a, a revolution in England in the middle of the 17th century. And he turned around to me and he said, they cut the guy's head off and that was sort of it. Now, in a Scottish context, obviously they don't subscribe to, uh, a warrant um, to, to execute the king. There are these kind of, these emphases on, on loyalty. 
but you know, revolutions are, are described by people after the event, and um, we have different criteria from those at the time. And while I'm not suggesting that those em- those emphases on on moderation were feigned, they weren't. They they clearly believed them. They believed what they were doing. I think this constant asking of questions about well, where do you stand now? Where do you stand on this changing issue? What you have is this this hill that they all start going down, this snowball effect. And the more and more they're asked about, well, what, what's your stance on it? You know, declare where you are now, tell everyone, swear on this, you know, all these quite traditional acts, you know, declarations, proclamations, and and oaths uh, have, have much longer histories in, 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 in Scotland uh, in particular. But every time they ask one of those questions, you know, the temperature goes up a little bit. And ultimately, by the time, despite what happens in the 1660s, where, you know, there are revocations and um, acts of oblivion um, on what's happened between 1638 and 1660, as Alan Kennedy in in the National Covenant volume that I edited suggests, that restoration state not only has to deal with the memory of those years, but it also absorbs some of the things um, that it's facing and it absorbs some of the almost learnings of that. So the desire to turn back time, if you like, I mean, that might be one desire in, 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 some, in some cases, but what you actually have in 1660 is a very different situation than you had in 1638, where they, they don't forget this. And often historians talk about forgetting as, um, you know, well, how could people forget it would be impossible because so many people died? And, and that's absolutely one way to look at it. But in terms of people being made to declare their political allegiances very publicly in this period, it's something that they don't turn the clock back on. And in this kind of like um, this squaring up to the state, the squaring up to political authority, that doesn't change either. So. What, what you've got here is, I've argued this before, there's a deep continuity in some of the practices in terms of religion that go on. People use those as a, as a form of kind of comfort, I suppose, and a touchstone. Parochial discipline doesn't change that much um, across this period. But overall, I mean, yeah, the, the changes that, that accumulate over this, this 22-year period are revolutionary. Um, now, we can pick up the weed, go into the weeds on, on what that means, on what the word revolution means. But I mean, this is this is 22 years of turbocharging political thought that they cannot take back. And I would argue, as Alan Kennedy does, uh, probably better than, than I would, that they, in some cases they don't want to turn back everything. They don't want to turn back um, all of those changes. And one might argue that they know they can't. The early modern state knows its limitations. And so what you end up with in 1660 is, you know, a period where they are still living with the consequences of what's happened for those previous 22 years. So in short, yes, this is a revolution. 
So, Dr. Carrie Schultz, was there a Scottish revolution? Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. And I think uh, part of the reason this is an interesting question is it was my fault for, for maybe raising this on a Twitter <laughs> debate a while ago. Yeah, so it's something that I've struggled with. And I obviously included revolution in the title of my thesis, and it's also in the title of my book. So it's something that I need to think about, and I, I kind of I probably already have a stance on. So one of the ways that I think about it is, is it was pioneered, sort of this term of the Scottish Revolution was pioneered by David Stevenson in the 1970s. And he really put forward the idea that it was revolutionary because it resulted in a massive transfer of power uh, from the king to parliament. And it also resulted in the abolition of the clerical estate. So there was a big change in the structure of the Scottish government. And there was a big movement of power and a transition of power. And so I think for Stevenson, it was a very political, it was a dynamic political change that made it really a revolutionary moment in Scottish history. And I think more recently, we've seen a lot of fantastic work being done by scholars um, such as Laura Stewart, as well as other scholars that are included in Chris Langley's uh, National Covenant volume. And I think they're actually really showing how this moment in history and particularly the National Covenant allows disenfranchised groups in Scotland who never really participated in politics before. So maybe people who did not go to universities or women, um, they're able to use the covenant as a way to participate in the political process, as a way to create their own identities and create some sort of collective political movement. Um, in that way, it is really revolutionary and empowering. And so I think on that side, I would agree that the Scottish Revolution was revolutionary in the change in political structure, in the ideas that are being put forth that sort of move Scotland from an absolute monarchy to, you know, trying to get to a limited monarchy, um, particularly when we look at sort of the purge of Parliament after the engagement uh, in the late 1640s. I think there's a lot that goes on that really does create moments of massive political upheaval and change. But on the other hand, working a lot on the royalists, I do think we need to be pretty cognizant of continuities as well. So ideas that are maybe not changing as much. Um, so when we look at the royalists, I think we need to be aware of their ways of perpetuating ideas about divine right kingship or about the king's sovereignty over the church. Um, so I think it is an interesting interplay between, you know, what's really revolutionary and what kind of creates fundamental changes in the, the politics of Scotland, and then what ideas are actually more continuous with the past. Um, so I think when we look at both Covenanters and Royalists together, we see an interesting dynamic. But on the whole, I would say I do think it is a revolution. And I think it is a revolutionary moment in Scottish history. But I think, you know, accounting for both sides is probably a wise way to go. Dr. Mickey Brock. My second to last question, which is one I've asked everyone, is do you think there was a Scottish Revolution? Do I think there was a Scottish Revolution? You know, it's funny before we had this call and I, you know, was anticipating maybe this question would be asked, talking to my friends who study both the American and French Revolution and just how how sort of prominent these sort of questions are. And I think it matters because the idea of revolution has been uh, very prominent in historiography. Um, now, my answer, of course, is it depends on how you define re revolution and for whom, <laughs> right? Um, which is a very obvious uh, thing to say. I mean, my more seriously, though, my answer is yes, I think there was, um, but it was very uneven. It wasn't consistent. Um, I think the biggest thing that was revolutionary about um, about the sort of covenanting movement, about the events of the period from 1638 into the Cromwellian occupation, is that it did create, and this is Laura Stewart's sort of idea, but I agree with her, this sort of imagined national community that was 
reinforced just through the communal process of swearing the covenants. And in places like air, going beyond swearing those covenants to constantly reminding the community of their membership in this covenant. And this imagined community, it was not just national, right? But I also think it helped to sort of cement certain aspects of regional communities and local parish communities. So I think you have a potentially a revolution in terms of people's political participation, awareness of membership in this community. But as I say, it's really uneven and it's not consistent chronologically either. So in air, yes, there was a Scottish revolution. But is that something you can say was regionally consistent? I don't think that you necessarily can. But, but I think the covenants did something and I think they, they mattered quite a lot um, in that way, particularly because of that sort of communal act of, of swearing, not once but twice. I think that, that meant quite a lot. Dr. Kirstine McKenzie. Do you recognise the term Scottish Revolution? Do you believe there was a Scottish Revolution? Um, no, not really. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, it, it really, the term Scottish Revolution really comes from David Stevenson. Now, at the time, the use of the Scottish Revolution as a term was perfectly acceptable because this was in the 1970s. And at this time, uh, Christopher Hill's perspective on the English Revolution, which uh, he, he uh, promoted, uh, which involved obviously the levellers and the diggers and this idea that England had gone through a revolution, sort of Marxist revolution from below, um, was all the rage. It was very, very fashionable. Um, so when David Stevenson was writing his book, and he admitted this himself, he just decided to call it the Scottish Revolution because that's what was going on at the time. Um, so no, not really, but it is a reflection of when the book was written and what was fashionable at the time and what historians were thinking. So it's not a criticism of Dave Stevenson per se or the idea of the Scottish Revolution. It's just to understand where it came from. Um, but I still believe in a very much a three kingdoms um, perspective because the Stuarts ruled over three very diverse kingdoms. And although um, at the moment, historians have somewhat retreated back into national histories of Scotland, Ireland and England during this period, I still believe that regardless, I think many historians in this period will still see um, uh, the, the 17th century as a century of three Stuart kingdoms, rather than just as uh, separate entities of Scotland, England and Ireland. Professor Goodair, was there a Scottish Revolution? If we are asking the question, was there a Scottish Revolution, we have to be clear about defining our terms. And revolution can be defined in different ways. And the best thing I can do is to give you my definition of it, which is about seizure of political power in a state. And it's about use of distinct ideology. So the revolutionaries appeal to a distinct ideology. So they know they're doing something different. And it is accompanied by large-scale restructuring of the political system so the revolutionaries govern differently and they use popular mobilization as well so the upheaval is so large that you know the common people in some senses 
are involved in it. So a revolution in this sense is distinct from, say, a palace coup. It's also distinct from something like a civil war or a war of succession. In those terms, was there a Scottish revolution? Yes, I think the Covenanters did seize power. They seized power successfully. They governed for a number of years. They restructured the political system in ways that had many long-term consequences, some very long-term consequences. The ideology also played itself out. The popular mobilization is interesting that's not necessarily a long-term thing but it underlines the distinct character of the revolution and i think the revolutionary character of the revolution can be underlined by the way in which it even leads to some broader social and economic change in the way that the state organizes or intervenes in the economy and society so yes dr louise yeoman was there a Scottish revolution? <laughs> well, it's kind of got elements of it, hasn't it? What they really want to do is to check royal power. And that isn't so revolutionary. You know, bodies like parliaments have wanted to check royal power for centuries. So, you know, that that's an old song, you might say. But it has within it the seeds of revolutionary things. You know, the fact that people are sort of willing to listen to ministers like Samuel Rutherford or visionaries like Margaret Mitchell. And the fact that people are sort of toying with godly authority. That, that to me, that's got the seeds of revolution. They never quite go there. We don't get a sort of Scottish bare-bones parliament or anything like that. But they're sort of toying with quite revolutionary notions. There's a revolutionary seed there. I think you maybe see it more when you get to the era of the later Covenanters, the United Society people who, oh, they say very, very radical things and they excommunicate the king. That's pretty radical. I, you know, I can't imagine the, you know, the, the Covenanters of the Haiti of Covenanting saying, yeah, we're going to excommunicate the king. They would not do that. But you've got the seeds of that kind of extremist revolutionary thought lying there. So I don't know that I'd call it a revolution, but it's got the seeds of the revolutionary. Dr Sharon Adams, was there a Scottish revolution? Now that is an interesting question. My one word answer is yes, but I think I'd like to recast the question and actually answer and say, I think there is certainly revolution and counter-revolution and in fact, there's maybe more than one revolution at this period. And what I'd add to that is how I think I would justify my yes is not just my perception, but I do think there's a sense that contemporaries were aware that they were doing something different, that they were turning politics, society, polity upside down. Yes, they stress continuity, they stress legitimacy. And with the very fact they have to do that indicates to me they are aware that they are doing something revolutionary. Professor Laura Stewart, was there a Scottish revolution? I think I, I, I would want to argue that there is a Scottish revolution. Um, and... I, I, I suspected you might. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, I, I want to reiterate that it's not me that came up with that idea. It was David Stevenson. And when David Stevenson talked about the Scottish revolution, he meant uh, a political 
and constitutional revolution in which there was a transformation in government affected by violence. What I partly wanted to do with the book was explore um, another dimension to that, which is the appeal to the people mm. that I think is absolutely crucial for explaining the success of the Covenanters um, up to 1641. But there's another revolutionary outcome that I wanted to stress in the book, and that was the way in which an archipelagic conflict on a scale unseen um, since the wars of the 1290s transformed the Scottish state. I saw it as a period in which state formation was accelerated um, and the um, Covenanters were able to mobilise the resources of a relatively poor society in, in ways that, that would have would have been almost unthinkable um, to, to James VI and I and even to Charles I. Um, and that legacy is an important one in, in fiscal terms. Um, the, 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 the fiscal regime that's created in the 1640s influences the way that people try to raise money for the rest of the century. But I think what needs more investigation is the way in which the 1640s changed the way or might have changed the way that people thought about government and what government was for and what it should be doing and how people should participate in it. Um, and those are very exciting debates that, again, link what happened in the 1640s to those bigger questions um, about early modernity. So that's my Scottish revolution. Um, I would also say that um, there are people who are motivated by the capacity for the national covenant to generate uh, a, a, a reformation. Um, and they want to see um, society made anew. They want a moral reformation. Um, and that dimension can't be forgotten in terms of understanding what motivated people um, to, to take the actions they did at the end of the 1630s. Dr. Alan MacDonald, was there a Scottish revolution? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, the key thing about what happened in 1639 to 41 is what happened in Parliament. Basically, there's some wonderful moments in the Parliament of 1639 to 41, um, one of which is in the summer of 1640, the, the Crown attempted to prevent Parliament from meeting by not sending the King's Commissioner to constitute the session. Parliament met, decided that that didn't matter, elected a president, which was without precedent, and just carried on. Effectively, what this parliament did in doing that and in doing a number of other things, asserting its authority, was to declare that the political nation as represented by parliament had a superior claim to be the sovereign of Scotland than even the king himself, so that if the king failed to exercise his duty as sovereign, that duty could be exercised by parliament. And if parliament and the king disagreed, parliament was superior. And I think that's that's the, the most striking thing about the covenanting revolution, is that it basically declared what we would recognise as constitutional monarchy. Okay, it didn't last, it, it, it didn't stick because of, of other things that happened subsequently, but effectively in 1639 to 41, what the Scottish Parliament was doing was very much like what the English Parliament did in the Glorious Revolution. Uh, we, we laud and, and look back on the Glorious Revolution as part of the, the great Whig narrative of, of British constitutional history as, as a great moment perhaps because it stuck 
in a sense, but we almost ignore the fact that these ideas hadn't just come out of nowhere. They'd been around for decades. And in the British context, at least, the first place they really make a, a mark is in that um, revolutionary parliamentary session of 1639-41. Dr. Claire McNulty, was there a Scottish revolution? <laughs> well, that's a big question, Sam, and I think you, I know where you're going with this, and people have lots of different opinions on this one, but I would tend to agree with David Stevenson in his kind of cautious labelling of the Scottish uh, revolution. So I think that, yes, there was a, you know, fundamental change to the character of government in Scotland, kind of in and after 1638. And there was certainly a constitutional revolution. And I know some historians have noted the revolutionary potential of of, of kind of the, the military at the time as well. So I suppose what, you know, I was trying to do for my own research was question whether there was a moral revolution. And that's, yeah, a tough, a tough question to, to answer. And I suppose within that, I was wondering, what was the role of church discipline in this moral revolution? And I suppose for me, I wanted to try and kind of step away from maybe elite thinkers and have a look at what was going on at parish level. So what was going on in these, you know, Edinburgh parishes in the 1630s, 1640s? Yeah, to try and kind of understand, you know, was there a revolution? Was there a moral revolution? And was there, uh, what was the role of of church discipline uh, within that? And I suppose from my thesis, I found that there was definite efforts to attempt a moral revolution. So if you look at the the ministerial change that happened in 1638 and 1639, the move from sort of Episcopalian to Presbyterian ministers, and if you look at kind of letters between ministers and uh, those kind of sources, it did seem like they were attempting a moral revolution. And then when I looked at the Kirk Session records, and certainly for South Leith, St. Cuthbert's and the Canongate, I could see that there was an effort to improve the moral standards of the parish, whether that was through kind of a stricter observance of the Sabbath, harsher punishments for fornicators and adulterers and things like that. So what I found is that they were definitely attempting a moral revolution, but I just felt that they ultimately were unable to achieve that goal. And I think for me, the most telling thing was the kind of continued sort of misbehavior in the eyes of the church, at least, of people, despite this effort to increase godly standards, I suppose, that people were kind of continuing to behave as before. So I felt that the Covenanters were hoping to achieve a moral revolution, but that ultimately they failed to do so. Professor Alan McInnes, was there a Scottish revolution? Absolutely. But it, it didn't. It was not terminal dates for a couple of years. It was a revolution that changed. How the, it didn't turn the world upside down, but it certainly changed and transformed political life in Scotland, indeed cultural life, and indeed also to a certain extent religious life. And, but above all, it created um, a more, it, it broadened, if you like, the public debate, the public, what was the political nation? And that was broadened and transformed in the 1640s. And it did not go away when the Restoration tried to return it to the aristocracy. I mean, there is a totally depressing 
view of Scottish history, well, it's all about crown and nobility from the 15th century to the 18th century and nothing changes. What really changed hugely and transformatively in the 17th century was covenanting, and that created a revolutionary situation and a radicalism that continued for the rest of the century and into the 18th. So that's that's what I would say. It's, it's, it is a state of mind that has changed, not uh, necessarily just offices or uh, how government works. Dr. Alan Kennedy, was there a Scottish revolution? That is a, an interesting question. And I suppose it depends what you mean by, by Scottish. Um, I mean, there is a revolution in uh, between 1637 and 1641. There, I don't think there's any doubt about that. There is a massive change in the, the basic fundamental structures of, of the Scottish state. Um, so in that sense, yes, there, there's clearly a, a Scottish revolution. I mean, it's, it, it, it ends up running into the ground, so it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't last you know, forever. But I think there's definitely a revolution. The problem is, I think, over that Scottish part, because what happens in Scotland in 1637 to 41, and then what happens throughout the 1640s and 1650s is so heavily bound up with what's going on elsewhere in the British Isles. I mean, I don't think I don't think you get the covenanting movement um, without multiple monarchy, without the fact that Charles I is also King of England and, and King of Ireland. Um, and equally, the... Um, you don't get a successful revolution. You don't get the Covenanters um, winning the two bishops' wars without the British context, without Charles I finding his resources hobbled by what's by the political crisis in, in England. Um, and also the, the subsequent course of the revolution after 1641 makes no sense at all unless you, ex you understand the British context. Um, so I think the way I would, I would um, frame this is there is a Scottish revolution, clearly, but we have to see it as one component of a much wider series of British revolutions that are also happening, um, which means, unfortunately, understanding this period, I think more so than almost any other period in early modern history, requires you to understand not just Scotland, but what's going on elsewhere. Um, so, yes, to a Scottish revolution, but only within the wider umbrella of British revolutions going on at the same time. There we have it. One question. 13 different historians, 13 different answers. Some answers came to opposite conclusions, others aligned neatly and complemented each other. All of them are based on interpretations of the evidence. After listening to this interview series and to this collection of answers, it's up to you. Which of these answers did you find most convincing? Was there a Scottish revolution? As a lecturer I had once said, those who sit on the fence get machine-gunned off, so better make your choice before she hunts you down. Thank you once again to each of my interviewees who took time out of their busy schedules to speak to me and to bring their research to you. They are, in order of appearance, Dr. Andrew Lind, Dr. Chris Langley, Dr. Carrie Schultz, Dr. Mickey Brock, Dr. Kirstine McKenzie, Professor Julian Goodair, Dr. Louise Yeoman, Dr. Sharon Adams, Professor Laura Stewart, Dr. Alan MacDonald, Dr. Claire McNulty, Professor Alan McInnes, and Dr. Alan Kennedy. Thanks to each of them for speaking with me, and thanks to you for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.